So this morning we're studying the parable in Luke 13, 6 through 9. I'll read the passage and then pray. And he told this parable, a man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. And he said to the vine dresser, look, for three years now I have come seeking fruit on this fig tree, and I find none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? And he answered him, sir, let it alone this year also, until I dig around it and put on manure. Then if it should bear fruit next year, well and good, but if not, you can cut it down. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word that you've revealed yourself in it, that in it you have shown us who we are, and most of all, that in it you have shown us your salvation in Christ. So as we come to this holy word this morning, we ask that you'd give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and hearts to understand, that your word would take root and produce fruit in our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Imagine there's a student who looks at his calendar and he sees that he has a final exam coming up just around the corner. And he also knows that he's unprepared for this test, that the amount of time that he has between now and the time for uh, the exam, he must spend time studying to ensure that he's ready. Otherwise, he's going to fail the class. But every opportunity that he, that he has, he puts studying off and to the side. Instead, he plays video games, he sleeps in, he hangs out with friends, so that when the day of the exam arrives, he is so totally unprepared that there is no way that he's going to pass the class. Knowing this, he tells the instructor of the course and, and asks for, for more time to study. And in an unthinkable display of patience, the instructor agrees and grants the student one more week to study. Now, if you were this student in this situation... How would you spend that extra week that was given to you? Now imagine there's an employee of a, of a company, and for the entire time that he's been employed there, he has completely failed to do what his job has required. And even worse than this, he's just imagined that he's used company time to stream TV shows, to do whatever it is that he wants to do, rather than make any effort whatsoever to do the task that he's been given. And so frustrated that his company has been losing income as a result of this employee, his boss informs him that he has to let him go. But the employee, desperate to keep his job, pleads with his supervisor and asks for just a little bit more time to do his work. And so in yet another act of patience and kindness, the boss agrees and gives him one more month to start fulfilling his duties. And so if you were the employee in this situation... How would you spend that extra month that's been given you? Now imagine that a wealthy businessman has spent his entire life working uh, to accumulate riches and status and influence, and has also done so at the expense of, of other people. His family, he's virtually abandoned and left in tatters. Those who have threatened his own prestige, he's ruined. And those, of, those who are lower and less powerful than himself, he's exploited. And all of this was proceeding as normal until one day he receives news from a doctor that he's, that he's dying and that his life could end at virtually any moment. And so distraught, he cries out to God to extend his life just a little bit. 
And so at a follow-up appointment, the doctors inform him of this good news, something miraculous has happened, that this indeed has been the case, that they estimate that he now has one year left to live. And so if you were this businessman in this situation, how would you spend this last year of your life that you've been given? Most of you probably look at these stories and think the characters would be crazy to not take advantage of that extra time that they've been given. The patience of the superior should present an opportunity for radical faithfulness. A second chance has been given should this not be something that should be taken advantage of. But not only this, the superior's patience is not perpetual. There is a limit to the leeway the perpetrators receive. And so what this means is not only that should these figures turn their ways around, but that they should do so with immediacy and with urgency, for their time is short. The patience of the master is not perpetual, but purposeful, with the goal of those under them turning their ways around and doing the jobs that they are called to. And church, this is the call to those who call themselves the people of God. As the Lord Jesus warns Israel in this passage that the time to repent and bear fruit is short for judgment is coming, so too does he charge his church. And so this is the call that I pray that we would soberly heed this morning from this text. Bear fruit keeping with repentance, for the time is short. And we will do this by observing three elements of this parable, predicament, punishment, and patience. First, let's observe the predicament of the passage. Look with me at verse 6. And he told this parable. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. The subject of this parable, the fig tree, is meant to represent corporate Israel. Throughout Scripture, especially in prophetic literature in places like Isaiah 5 and 10, Jeremiah 8, Hosea 9, and so forth, the image of a plant such as a tree or a vine or a fig tree is used to depict God's chosen and set-apart nation. And frequently their disobedience or unfaithfulness is uh, then presented as fruitlessness or as producing bad fruit, while the coming judgment is depicted as being cut down or uprooted. And so this is the, the imagery that Jesus is picking up on here. But we can also notice this from the context. So in Luke's gospel, Jesus is presented as the spirit-anointed Messiah of Israel who has come to establish the kingdom of God and to invite his people into it. And in this particular section of Luke, there is a, a heightened attention and sense of urgency as Jesus sets his face toward Jerusalem to accomplish the work given to him as the suffering servant. And so along the way, he has proclaimed to the people of Israel, those whom he was sent to, that the kingdom is upon them. That's chapter 11, verse 20. Yet those who think themselves to be the people of God and the children of the covenant consistently show themselves to be faithless, to, be, to reject their Messiah, 11, 29 through 32, to desire formal displays of righteousness while neglecting justice and love of neighbor, chapter 11, 37 and following, and 13, 10 through 17. In other words, they have in general shown themselves to be disobedient servants, 12, 41 through 48. 
And unless they turn from their ways and follow Jesus and his message, they will be left out of the kingdom, left out of the great banquet with God and his people, 14, 12 through 24. And all the while, those whom we would not expect, tax collectors like Zacchaeus and sinners like the prodigal son, are welcomed in in because of their repentance. So in a word, the predicament of this parable is meant to paint a reality that the people have not yet come to grasp. They suppose themselves to be in a position of safety as the people of God chosen and set apart by Yahweh. And this false sense of safety is what lies behind the question that preceding passage. The accounts of two tragedies are told, and it's assumed by members of Jesus' audience that the victims were uniquely deserving of their deaths. But Jesus overturns this, this assumption and points to, instead to his listeners' spiritual state. He says in verse 5, Unless you repent, you likewise will perish. They ask, why them? Jesus asks, why not you? So to drive this point forward, to uncover to his audience the danger of their position, he uses this parable to show them that God's people as a whole have not produced fruit keeping with repentance. They have not been obedient or faithful to what they've been called to do. The kingdom of God has come into their midst in the person of Christ, yet they have not received him. They have privileged outward signs of obedience, but neglected the weightier matters of the law, 13, 10 through 17. The point of the predicament is that the status of being the people of God is worthless apart from the fruits of obedience. Now, to be clear, the fruit of good works is not the grounds of being chosen as the people of God. Scripture tells us in places like Deuteronomy 7 and Ephesians 2 that God chooses and sets apart his people out of his own sovereign grace and nothing in them. The fig tree doesn't plant itself. But this predicament tells us that we cannot presume upon a status if we do not have the fruit that is inseparable from it. God saves and sets apart his people for good works, to remake them after his image, to display his glory. So to claim the title of being God's people without the fruit that must necessarily accompany it is meaningless. In fact, the kind of fruit a tree produces tells you what kind of tree it is. Those who claim to be God's people without the fruit of repentance should question whether their status is genuine. In church, if we read this parable and do not see ourselves in Jesus' audience, then we make the same dangerous mistake as the people that he's speaking to. Their premise is that judgment and condemnation is something that only happens to people who are outside of us. Their premise, uh, but far be it from us to think that we are excluded from Jesus' warnings. And so let me address us as as Christchurch Westchester. Do we presume ourselves safe from God's judgment because of our assumed status as God's people? We bear the name of Christ's church, but do we as a church bear the fruit of Christ's church? Do we corporately as a congregation, as a church body, strive to continue to bear fruit, keeping with repentance? 
And church, the, the seriousness of Jesus' warnings here is why we take seriously our membership together. It's why our pastors frequently remind the congregation of our duty and our responsibility to keep watch over the faithful preaching of God's word and to remove any pastor or teacher who preaches a different gospel. And it's why we as a congregation go to lengths to maintain to the best of our ability a born-again church membership, ensuring that those who take up membership here are those whose professions of faith are backed up by an ongoing desire to leave their sin behind. This is why we agree to exhort and correct and encourage one another in following Christ. As members, we agree to these things so that we as individuals might continually repent and bear fruit, and also so that we as a church body might display to the world around us the fruit associated with God's name, so that others might see our good works and give glory to the Father who is in heaven. So the predicament is, uh, of this parable is a wake-up call to those who presume themselves to be safe because of their supposed status of being God's people. And it serves as a reminder to bear fruit keeping with repentance, for the time is short. Second, notice the theme of punishment in this passage. Look at verse 7. And he said to the vine dresser, Look, for three years now I have come seeking fruit on this fig tree, and I find none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? We have seen that claiming the status of the people of God must necessarily be followed by the fruits of repentance. That the kind of fruit people produce bears witness to whose they are. And here we see that status without fruit is not only useless, but it also brings punishment, judgment, condemnation. In the parable, the fig tree is not producing the fruit that it was planted for. It is missing the very purpose of its inclusion in the owner's vineyard. And worse than this, it's a waste of space. It is using up the nutrients of the soil. It's actually working against the intentions of the owner. And so because of this, the owner's justified response is to cut it down, to cut it off from its source of life. And this is the same end for following verse 5, those who do not bear the fruits of repentance. Set apart for God's purposes to bear the fruit of good works to those outside, Israel has been given many opportunities for obedience. The vineyard owner has long expected the fruit that she was planted for. And so Israel, apart from these fruits of, of repentance and obedience, is deserving of the same end and punishment as this fig tree. The people are like those in Luke 6.46 who claim to follow the Lord and who hear the word of the Lord, but do not do it, and so are destined for great ruin. They're like the unfaithful servants in Luke 12.46 who know the master's will, but disobey it, and so are destined for punishment and to be counted with the unfaithful. The warning in verse 5 is a severe one. Unless you repent, you will likewise perish. And the vineyard owner's command to the keeper to cut it down immediately demonstrates the imminence of judgment and the urgent need to repent. 
This impending punishment and destruction of the unrepentant is associated with the coming kingdom of God, which is a source of life everlasting to those who hear, believe, and do the word of God, and a source of judgment for those who hear and reject it. And it's identified later in this chapter, not merely as a physical, but also a spiritual reality. Just as those whose eternal life is not simply eternal existence, but everlasting fellowship with God in his kingdom, so also is the judgment not simply non-existence, but being entirely cut off from the kingdom, from the presence and fellowship of the living God. This is how Jesus defines it later in 13, 24 through 28. He says, Strive to enter through the narrow door, for I tell you, for many I tell you, will seek to enter it and will not be able. When once the master of the house has risen and shut the door, and you begin to stand outside and to knock at the door, saying, Lord, open to us, then he will answer you. I do not know where you come from. Then you will begin to say, We ate and drank in your presence, and you taught in our streets. But he will say, I tell you, I do not know where you come from. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. When you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves cast out. Friends, the the warning given in the parable of the barren fig tree should be heard with, with great sobriety. If the owner of the vineyard were to inspect your life today for the fruits keeping with repentance, what would he find? Whether you call yourself a Christian or not this morning, do the fruits of your, of your life reveal a life that has been made new by the gospel of Christ? Whether you call yourself a Christian or not, this passage should remind us of the severity of our sin. It devastates lives. It ruins relationships. It exploits and oppresses. It hardens and blinds us into self-deceit. But more than this, it's the worship of a created thing over the creator, robbing him of his honor while separating us from his presence and good pleasure such that we stand under his just condemnation. Sin, disobedience to God's revealed law written in his word and on our very hearts is no innocent thing. As long as we are in sin, we can only produce rotten fruit. We are separated from God, and we are deserving of his punishment. But friends, our sin does not need to be the end of our story. For Jesus Christ, the divine and human Son of God, lived a sinless life on our behalf. He took this just punishment for sin on our behalf. He was cut off on our behalf and was resurrected and now reigns on our behalf so that all who repent and turn from their sins to him in faith, might be saved from their sin and be given new life in him, so that they might bear good fruit. Jesus himself was treated as the barren fig tree, so that his repentant people, who are joined to him by his spirit and through faith, receive the manifold riches of his benefits, so that when the owner of the vineyard comes, he sees that we are bearing much fruit. So friends, turn to Christ today, whether it's for the very first time or whether it's for the hundredth time. Do not delay. 
Turn from your sin and trust in the Lord Jesus, bearing fruit, keeping with your repentance, for the time is short. Third and finally, notice the patience in this passage. Look at verses 8 and 9. And he answered him, Sir, let it alone this year also until I dig around it and put on manure. Then if it should bear fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. At the end of this parable, the fig tree, which has been given plenty of time to yield fruit but has not, which has been using up the soil and limiting the production for the vineyard owner, in which the vineyard owner would be totally just in cutting down, has been spared, at least for a little bit. Three years of fruitlessness would lead many to believe that it's already too late for it to bear fruit, that if it hasn't up to this point, it will not do so in the future either. So an extra year of life is, is a display of undeserved patience from the vineyard owner. Now, some of you may be wondering about the significance of some of the details in this section of the parable. Many have wondered about the identity of the vine dresser who steps in on behalf of the fig tree and about the extra attention that the fig tree is to receive in the, in the coming year. And I think these are valid questions to press into, but these questions also need to be asked in view of the parable and the surrounding context as a whole. Remember in verse 5, uh, Jesus sets the stage for this parable by prompting some self-reflection from his audience. Unless you repent, you will likewise perish. The main focus, uh, the main subject of this narrative is the need for the fig tree to bear fruit, what will happen to it if it does not, and the borrowed and limited, limited time that it's living on. In other words, the main thrust of Jesus' story is less about how Israel is a recipient of undeserved patience, but that she is a recipient of undeserved patience. But more than this, the, that judgment is coming soon at an unexpected time, so the time to act is now. In other words, whatever the details in this parable might mean, the point his audience cannot afford to miss is that the time to bear fruit keeping with repentance is short and that there is no time for delay. And on top of this, Israel's lack of uh, experience of judgment in the present should not be confused with God's favor. Instead, it should be seen as God's patience. And this realization should lead them to see that God's patience is not indefinite, but purposeful. Whatever time exists before judgment comes is specifically given so that they might produce fruits. Israel is living on borrowed time that is running out. And that time has a purpose, to be what they were called to be. Again, church, may we not miss the urgency of the warnings here. The subject of this parable is, is Israel, but remember that this gospel addressed to a believer is for the church. There will come a day when all, including those who profess to be the people of God, will stand before the throne of judgment to give an account. There will be a time when the vineyard owner returns. And again, while the fruit of good works is not what secures or maintains our salvation, our, rep our repentance and faith in Christ for salvation cannot come apart from them. 
A genuine turning from sin and to God in faith necessarily means the fruits of good works and of struggling against sin will be produced. Let me remind us again from this passage that the time to bear fruit in keeping with repentance is short. Friends, do you recognize the brevity of the time? For those of us who are young and healthy, do you recognize that your present youthfulness and good health is no guarantee of another year, another month, or another week of life? Do you ever think about how it would affect you if you received a a fateful medical diagnosis? If, like in Luke 12 that Nate recently preached from, you were told, tonight your soul is required of you, would you be ready? Or would you need more time? Now, I don't say these things out of a desire to uh, to be morbid, but to point us to the warning of Jesus. The time is short. Tomorrow may be too late. In his book, Confessions, the North African theologian Augustine looks back on a period uh, in his life before he became a Christian. Uh, this was uh, before he trusted in the Lord. Uh, there, was a, there was a time when he knew the gospel of Christ. He, he knew that he could be saved only by turning to him in repentance and faith. But he also knew that this demanded that he turn from his sin. And so he knew that Christ offered him the, the, free, uh, the free gift of, of salvation, but he also knew the cost of discipleship and what he was being called to. And so over and over again, he, he continued to say to God, just a little longer, Lord, just a little longer. Or as it's been popularly shared, he says, Lord, make me chaste, but not yet. And I wonder if this perhaps characterizes your attitude today. Perhaps now your focus is less on bearing fruit, on setting aside personal wants and desires for the sake of the kingdom, than it is on other pursuits. Perhaps you tell yourself once you've attained the career you'd like, or once you've reached retirement, that then as if you'd be in a fine position to labor for the kingdom. Perhaps there's a habitual sin that would take too much effort to throw off, so you put it off to deal with another day. Friends, you may not get another day. The vineyard owner may inspect the fruit at any moment, and whatever days are given to us are given so that we might bear fruit. Perhaps you're here and you would not call yourself a Christian, and if that's you this morning, let me just say that it's a, a joy and a privilege to welcome you here to our gathering But the reason that we take such delight in welcoming you here is because we here at Christ Church long for you to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ, as you've you've heard here this morning. And having heard this good news that Jesus Christ saves sinners to himself to everlasting life, what prevents you from coming to him today? Perhaps you, you may have a rational objection to the faith, some sort of barrier or something in Scripture that, you, uh, that doesn't make sense to you. And if that's the case, I'd like to speak on behalf of any pastor or, or member here and say that we would love to open the Bible with you and help you understand better the message of Christ crucified for salvation. We may not have the perfect answers, but it's a joy for us to know him, and we desire that of you as well. 
But I also wonder if what might be keeping you is not some rational argument, but something in your life that you don't want to part with in coming to Christ. You may even say that you will trust in Christ eventually, but not yet. But Jesus himself says, the time is short, so do not delay. Believer and unbeliever alike, do not delay because you do not know which day will be your last. Every breath that you take is a sign of God's unmerited favor towards you. It is given to you so that you might produce the fruit of repentance. Do not delay because Christ will come again, winnowing fork in hand to judge the living and the dead. And those he finds not doing the Father's will will be cast into outer darkness for eternity, cut off from the benevolence of God and subject to his punishments. But church, those of us who are in Christ, who have turned from our former ways of worshiping false gods and have turned to the true God through faith in Christ, can rejoice at the thought of that day. For on that day when he returns, he will delight in those servants who have been obedient. He will bring us into his kingdom in its full completion, where he will reign forever, and we will be in the presence of the triune God. We will feast in the marriage supper of the Lamb, where sin and death have been banished forever. So it's not simply out of fear of punishment that we labor to produce fruit, before the hope of the glory that lies before us. It's not only the fear of punishment that motivates us, it's also the recognition of the immeasurable worth of the kingdom that spurs us on. The kingdom is so precious, so priceless, that it is worth leaving everything behind for. The short time that we have left here that God has given us is to be used to bear the fruits of repentance that promote the advance of this kingdom. In the time between Christ's earthly ministry, death, resurrection, and ascension when he inaugurated or established or began the kingdom, and the time when he returns, when that kingdom is fully and finally realized, we are called to set aside everything that limits our service for that kingdom That kingdom call is so glorious and so abundant that we are to be single-minded in our approach. And this building of the kingdom is done most explicitly in the church's proclamation and offer of the gospel through the right preaching of God's word and administration of the ordinances, the Lord's Supper, and baptism, and through taking the gospel to the nations and to our unbelieving neighbors. Yet the victory... And the present reign and the future coming return of Christ and his kingdom is also displayed or made manifest in the fruits of obedience in his people. The daily commitment to cross-bearing is kingdom fruit. Dealing honestly and with integrity in your business, even if it's at the expense of profits, is kingdom fruit. Public school teachers putting their jobs in jeopardy by respectfully but firmly standing up for unpopular biblical sexual ethics is kingdom fruit. Doing the hard work of asking a brother or sister in Christ for help and putting sin to death is kingdom fruit. And doing the hard work and painful work of coming alongside a brother or sister struggling in sin is kingdom fruit. And it's kingdom fruit that God in his patience has given us right now to produce. 
So friends, do not delay in your labors to bear fruit. For not only must we give an account for our profession and for our actions, but also because the hope of glory that we live for far exceeds any light and momentary affliction that we have to endure now on its behalf. But the time for this fruit-bearing is short. The owner of the vineyard will return. His purposeful patience is not indefinite. Christ will come again and will gather his own for his great marriage feast. And so in the short time before then, will you bear fruit in keeping with repentance for that day? So come labor for the reward that never fades away. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your mercy displayed in these warnings, reminding us that our time is short, reminding us that you have called us to bear fruit in keeping with repentance, to labor on behalf of your kingdom that Christ has established and will bring to completion on the last day. We ask that you to forgive us for our laziness, forgive us for our sluggishness, And give us the grace we need to produce good fruits. Prune us and keep us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.